life upon your love. I will trust in you alone. That bridge made me think of Jesus' words as he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, that the wise person builds their life on the foundation of truth that is Christ. The foolish builds their life on the sand. We can, we can build our lives on a lot of things, but in Luke's gospel, he, he speaks of that and says that the wise person digs down deep to the bedrock, and that's where he lays his foundation. And I'm so appreciative that you're here today because we're going we're gonna to dig down deep today. And we're going to look at uh, the arguments that Paul makes here for justification by faith in Christ alone as opposed to by works of the law. Before I do that, though, I know that we have many that are on vacation over these last few weeks. Some of you have been gone. Some uh, are still distancing themselves due to some health concerns. And uh, I just want to encourage those who are watching video, those who are here, um, don't isolate yourself. Uh, one of the, the, the big term right now is social distancing, and I've never really liked that particular term. I think there was a bit of a movement to get that changed, but it kind of got beat up by the media. I prefer the term physical distancing. We don't want to socially distance ourselves. Don't isolate yourself. Uh, reach out to people. If you look around and you know, hey, this family's gone today, this family's gone today, uh, reach out, send a text, let them know you're praying for them, ask them how you can pray for them. Let's make sure that we're, we're not avoiding people and avoiding our responsibilities to be the church in each other's lives. And so I just want to encourage you in those regards before we get started. But uh, let's catch up. Last week, uh, we considered Paul's strong words for the foolish Galatians that ended in this series of questions. We're in Galatians chapter 3, uh, but at the end of those questions, he brought up Abraham as an example, and that's where we're going to focus most of our attention today. I was thinking about what Paul is really doing in the letter to the Galatians, and I thought of it in terms of a spider web. Uh, nobody likes spider webs. You hate walking into a spider web, even if it's a single thread spider web, it's extremely uncomfortable. Uh, but a single thread spider web, you can pretty easily break through. If it gets on your face, you can wipe it off and move on. But when you walk through one that has been weaved together to perfection and there's a web laid on a web wrapped by another web, it's harder to break. That's what Paul's doing here. He's laying argument upon argument upon truth upon truth so that he can win in the end. Because what's at stake? Not Paul's reputation per se, but the gospel. And he's fighting for this. And so he's giving this series of arguments that yes, it gets somewhat detailed and it gets somewhat intricate, but it's very important for us to understand why Paul is doing what he is doing. He's wanting to convince the Galatians that Christ saves by justifying us when we put our faith in him and him alone. And we'll see that as we continue to work through. But Abraham is the topic today. So I thought it would be fun to start this way. What do you know about Abraham? Let's just, let's just spit some things out. You've heard the name Abraham before. What are some things that come to mind when you think about Abraham? He had many sons. Hey, we're going to sing that here in a little bit. Yes, Abraham had many sons. Good. What else? That's it? Oh, we know more about him. Who said? He had a covenant with God. Yeah, he had a covenant with God. Made a covenant with Yahweh. Good. 
We'll look at that in a moment too. What else do we know about Abraham? He obeyed. He obeyed. He had faith in God. What else? He did go on a trip. Yes, he did. He went on a big trip, a trip of faith. Good. Anybody else? We're going to walk through a lot of these things that you've mentioned this morning together. But let's read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. This is the scripture we're going to cover today. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness... So again, if you weren't here last week, we're, we're picking up the very end of his argument last week, and we're moving into verse 7 where he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us questioning but you give us the answers. You reveal the things that we need. And I pray that you would help us this morning, Spirit, to, to not only understand these things, but to be moved by these things. That our hearts would be filled with joy by these things. These truths about our Savior. These truths about our justification by faith in Him. Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. But our text begins by talking about Abraham's faith. So let's start there. Verse 6, Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So as we consider what Paul discussed last week, he uses Abraham as an example that justification, that is being declared to be righteous, being in right standing with God, it doesn't happen based upon your works. It doesn't happen based upon how good you are. It happens by putting your faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That's why he came on the cross. That's why he lived the life that we could not live. This is such a wise move on Paul's part to bring Abraham into the storyline because no doubt the false teachers, what we would call the Judaizers who had moved in to these churches in Galatia, they were talking about Abraham. They loved Abraham. And they were telling people, hey, if, if you want to be a son or a daughter of Abraham, then you have to follow Abraham's ways. Uh, you have to be circumcised according to the covenant that was made with Abraham if you want to be a son of Abraham. They brought Abraham up. Paul brings him up as well into the argument. Let's look at Genesis 17, if you will. We're going to be back and forth between Galatians and Genesis, so you may want to put a marker there in Genesis. But Genesis 17 would be the go-to text for these false teachers in Galatia. They would want to cram Genesis 17 down the throats of the people, convincing them that they needed to be circumcised in order to be the true sons of Abraham, in order to truly be right with God. You have to follow through in this particular practice of circumcision. And so let's check this out. 
Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Well, then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make, unto, I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These are some big promises. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So do you see why the false teachers in Galatia would have loved this text. you got to be circumcised or you've broken the covenant. What they failed to realize is that they'd broken the covenant anyway. We could never hold up to our end of any covenant. It's Yahweh who always holds the covenant together by His faithfulness and grace and mercy. But they loved this text in Galatia. you got to be circumcised if you want to be right with Yahweh. Another go-to text would be probably a couple chapters later. Genesis 22, one of the, the coolest stories in the Old Testament where, where uh, Abram takes his son Isaac and is going to offer him as a sacrifice. And at the last minute, the angel stops him and there's a ram caught in the thicket and, and they sacrifice and offer this burnt offering to the Lord on Mount Moriah uh, there as an offering to Yahweh instead of Isaac. And uh, they would point to that as well as the beginnings of the sacrificial system that would come by way of the Mosaic law and see you have to follow these particular laws and traditions. But what Paul does here in bringing this up, in bringing Abram into the conversation is a nice checkmate move because he corners the false teachers because he quotes from Genesis chapter 15 here in Galatians chapter 3. And so look with me now, Genesis 15, and the first few verses there together. Genesis 15, verse 1. We're moving, we're moving backwards, right, in Abraham's story. 
So Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside. I love this. And he said, Abram, look, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Right? An impossible task. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And notice verse 6. This is the crux of what Paul is saying in Galatians 3. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abraham believed Yahweh's promise, and it was counted to Abram as righteousness. Here in Genesis 15, Yahweh is making a covenant with Abraham. This conversation starts back in Genesis 12. We're going to go there in just a moment. But in verse 4, Yahweh says to Abram, he says, look at the stars and number them. That's how many your offspring will be. He's saying it's, it's, an, it's an amount that you cannot comprehend. Your offspring, your family will be huge, Abraham. And how does Abraham respond to Yahweh's promise? What does it say? He believes. He trusts. He puts his faith in the word that Yahweh said. And how does Yahweh respond to Abraham? It says he counts it as righteousness to Abraham. He credits into Abram's account righteousness. He pronounces him to use the New Testament term, justified, based upon his faith. Now, I want to insert a bit of a technical note here. Some argue that Abram's faith is itself some form of righteousness. So the fact that Abram had faith and he trusted, yeah, that's the righteousness that he receives because he, he simply believed in that moment. But that's not what it says. The text doesn't say that his faith was righteousness. Rather, it was counted to him as righteousness. It's, just, it's a huge point of distinction because it wasn't a righteousness that came from Abraham. It was a righteousness that came to Abraham. It wasn't something he did. It was something that Yahweh did for him in that moment. And so Paul says to the Galatians, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. What is it that the just, the righteous live by? Faith. They live by faith. That line from Habakkuk that's quoted throughout the scriptures. So Paul argues that Abraham here is justified by his faith in Yahweh, not by his works according to the law. And here's where the argument comes together. Do you see how this is such a good argument? Because Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. 
He makes the promise and counts him righteous based upon his faith, not based upon circumcision that doesn't come for another several years in the life of Abraham. It's not based upon what he does. It's based upon who God is. God hasn't even brought up sacrifices yet. The law of Moses won't be around for 400 years. But Abraham is righteous because of faith. Just as Abraham was justified by faith in God, so too the Galatians, even though they're 2,000 years removed from Abraham, they're justified by their faith in God and the promises he made. So too are we 2,000 years removed from the Galatians, justified by the faith that we place in the promises that God has made to us through Christ. The means of salvation, I hope you see this, has never changed. We must understand and embrace this point. We saw this time and time again, even as we worked through Joshua and Judges and Ruth and all those books last year in the Old Testament. It wasn't about what they did. It was about who Yahweh was and their expression of faith in them. Let's look at one other text that will kind of seal this deal. Romans chapter 4. We'll go back to Genesis and Galatians, but Romans 4. Paul makes a very similar argument to the Romans in relation to Abraham and the order of these things. Romans 4 verse 9. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. It was before he was circumcised. Paul again making the same argument that salvation doesn't come by what we do. Salvation comes by what Jesus did and putting our trust in him and him alone. So now that we've got a beat on Abraham's faith, let's talk about his family. See, being a Jew, uh, the, the pride of being a Jew was you're connected to Abraham. He's your father. And, and you have this amazing lineage that you could trace even through the tribes that would go back to, to Israel or Jacob, but then moving on to the, the first of the forefathers, Abraham. Anybody in here have any Famous people in your ancestral lineage? Nobody? Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, some of you probably got like Jeffrey Dahmer or some Ted Bundy, some serial killer, something like that. Anybody? Nobody? Nobody has anybody famous? Mary, the Queen of Scots. That's Bloody Mary, right? Oh my goodness. Watch out. Whew, okay. Being a Jew. The significance was your connection to Abraham. And so for those of you who grew up in Sunday school, as was already mentioned, there was probably a song that you sang called Father Abraham. And you would sing that, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then for whatever reason, you'd start moving your right arm. And then you're, by the end, you're doing right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, nod your head. You know, you're doing all those things. I think it was just probably the 
to get the, the wiggles out of the little kids, something like that, just to distract them for a moment. But, but I don't know why all the right arm, left arm stuff was really in there, but notice verse seven, because verse seven is why that song exists. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So he's saying this, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, not those of works. It's not based upon the fact that you're circumcised or you're not circumcised. It's based upon those who have faith in Yahweh. Paul writes that those who trust God, those who express faith in God, are the ones who are considered to be the sons and the daughters of Abraham. This would be a direct contradiction, a shot across the bow of the false teachers there in Galatia who considered circumcision and obedience to the covenant law the only means of someone being called a, a child of Abraham, which was very convenient for those who were Jewish Jesus followers because they were circumcised when they were eight days old. But for the Gentile followers, it was not quite as convenient for them. And this isn't the only letter where Paul argues this point. Consider Romans 9. You don't have to turn there with me. But he says this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all that are children of Abraham because they are, I'll add this in, simply his offspring. Here he says the same, just because you're ethnically a Jew, just because you can trace your, your genealogy to, to Abraham or to Jacob or Israel doesn't mean that you're truly a child of Abraham. Thought about titling the sermon, Who's Your Daddy? Uh, you know, but then I was like, I'll just go with Father Abraham because that's the question. Who is your dad? Are you, a, are you a son or a daughter of Abraham? This relational connection is noted all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 12. But, but before, we, before we look there, let's, let's look at Galatians one more time. I want you to look with me at this verse before we go to Genesis 12. Galatians 3 and verse 8. Uh, this is beautiful. He says, And the Scripture... Speaking of Genesis, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Okay, so now let's look at Genesis 12. This is where we're first introduced to Abraham. This is where what faith said a while ago about him going on a trip happens. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. A, a promised land, right? That's where we get the idea of the promised land. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul claims that the gospel has been preached beforehand. The good news has been preached beforehand, even to Abram. This good news of Jesus... How, how is the gospel preached beforehand here? What do we see in these verses? Yahweh promises Abram that he'll bless him, 
But in turn, Abram will be blessed so that he is a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the world. How would God bless Abram in such a way? What's the promise that God makes to Abram right here? Wasn't land, wasn't wealth, wasn't wisdom. Genesis 12 is what we call a messianic promise. Abraham, his family, namely one descendant that would come from Abram's family, would bless all the nations of the world. How can this be? Bear with me another time. Go to Matthew chapter 1 with me. I know we're going a lot of places today. But Matthew chapter 1. Here we find a genealogical list, a lineage. And notice the first name on the list in verse 2. Abraham. Notice the last name on the list in verse 18. Jesus. Born of Mary. Called the Christ. The Messiah. God would bless Abraham by providing the Messiah through his family lineage. The Messiah would then bless all of the nations of the world by providing redemption, salvation, justification to all that would place their faith in him. This is why in, in Revelation chapter 4, it says that all of the families of the earth, all tribes will be represented, all kindred will be represented, all languages will be represented, gathered around the throne singing, worthy is the Lamb. That's the fulfillment of this promise made in Genesis chapter 12. That Abram, you're going to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the world. It's fulfilled in the end. But what we can't miss, what the Galatians were missing, and what we can't miss, is the necessity of faith. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All of it depends upon faith, trust, belief in the promises of God. Abraham called a man of faith in verse 9, is blessed because of his faith. It had nothing to do with his works, had nothing to do with his, his circumcision, anything else. And friends, we too are blessed because of our faith. And what is faith? Faith is this. I can't do this. God, you have to do this. It's it. Let me read to you something that J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle writes. He says, saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. And he sees the Lord Jesus Christ holding out help to him. And he grasps it and is saved. That is faith. Saving faith is like the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite that's been bitten by a fiery serpent in the wilderness. And at the point of death, 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is offered to him as a brazen serpent set up for the cure. And he looks and he's healed. This is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for want of food and sick of a sore disease. And the Lord Jesus is set before him as the bread of life, the universal medicine. And he receives it and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy and is in fear of being overtaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower, a hiding place, a refuge, and he runs into it and is safe. This is faith. It's trust. Now some may ask, what's the difference between Abraham's faith and ours? Well, Abraham had less information. He didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to consider the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Abraham placed his faith in the promise of Yahweh. Abraham trusted that Yahweh is a God who will keep his covenant that he's made. Abraham believed that Yahweh would provide redemption and a savior. Our faith, yours and mine, is far more informed. Unlike Abraham, we have the law. We have the prophets that speak of the Christ. We have the gospels that reveal his life and ministry, his death and resurrection. We have the letters that are written to explain these things. We trust and we put our faith in the Messiah that God has provided, Jesus the Christ. So today the bottom line is simple. Faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. Yahweh spoke those words to Habakkuk so many years ago that the just live by their faith. And remember the context. He's speaking of the Chaldeans who are going to come in and, and ransack Israel. They're going to be this instrument of punishment. But, but what does he say of the Chaldeans? They trust in themselves. They trust in their military might. They trust in their plans and their wisdom. And they're going to come to an end because they trust in themselves. But then he says this, but the just, the righteous, live by their faith in Yahweh. By trusting in me, he says. Not in their ability, not in your wisdom, not in your power, not in your works of righteousness that you can do. We're justified by faith in Yahweh, by faith in the Christ that Yahweh has promised and provided. So how do we grow our faith then? How do we help other people come to understand that they need to place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ? Uh, now more than ever, there are so many things that, that people are fearful of in this present climate in our culture. They need a savior. They need to be pointed to the, the, the brazen serpent on the pole. They needed to be pointed to the, the hiding place that they can run to, the, the bread of life that can fill them and give them substance. 
How do we help them? How do we help ourselves in growing our faith? Romans chapter 10 says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We grow our faith as we hear. We help others grow their faith as we share and they hear the word of God, the truth of scripture, of who he is. The more I read and, and study, meditate, and memorize this book, you know what, the deeper my faith grows. I am, I am enamored. I was, I was talking to Heather and Jason yesterday just about, about this, about how this promise made in Genesis 12 is fulfilled in Revelation 4 and the continuity that exists in Scripture of telling, telling this one story of how God is redeeming his creation. And how you see this promise in Genesis 12 that, hey, you're going to bless all the families of the world. And in Revelation 4, you see all those families gathered around the throne singing praise. Not to Abraham, but to God. To the Savior who did these things. The more I, I dig into the word and I study and see these things, the deeper my faith becomes. But the more I distance myself, the more I spend time watching Netflix, the more I spend time doing other things, listening to other voices on social media, news channels, whatever. What happens? The weaker my faith becomes. It's not just my experience, is it? I mean, is that, is that, I think that that should be a common experience across the board for each of us that we get when I'm in the word, my faith is, is deepened because I, I, I see the promises that God has made. We've got to help people engage in the word of God. I want to close with what I hope is, is a great moment of, of encouragement and even worship for us. We're going to look at one other text together, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, if you'll turn there with me. If you can find 1 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone a little bit too far. Hebrews chapter 11. What I want you to see here is that faith has always been the requirement. Faith has always been the necessary component. Notice Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we're understanding that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Notice verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Jump down to verse number six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse number eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed 
when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to, to the city that was, has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, well past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Notice verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I love that verse. Think of Abraham. He didn't receive the promised Messiah that was in his lineage, but he saw it from afar. He knew he was coming. Notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He speaks of the faith of Isaac and then the faith of Jacob. Notice verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid of the king's edict. Jump down to verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Oh, and what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these... Though commended through their faith, justified by their faith, did not receive what was promised. Not in their lifetime. Since God has promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Noah, Abraham, Moses, those guys who were sawn in two. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, then let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking not to Abraham, not to Moses, not to your parents or your grandparents, looking to Jesus. And don't you love how he's described right here? The author and the finisher of our faith. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. And he will finish it. He wrote it. He'll finish it. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. We look to him, the author, the finisher of our faith. One man who joined that cloud of witnesses just this last week was a man named J.I. Packer. You saw him on the video at the beginning of the service. J.I. Packer was about two generations in front of me. But God used him mightily to bring revival to a generation by a book that he wrote that's relatively simple. It was called Knowing God. And it stirred the hearts of a generation to truly delight in and enjoy this God who loves us so much. He went to his eternal reward this week and I pulled out a couple of his books and was looking through them and I wanted to read to you some of his closing remarks on faith in a book called God's Words. He says, sometimes said a student, I feel my faith is like tissue paper. I could put my hand right through it. That put vividly what many feel. How can, how can weak faith be made strong and little faith become great? Not by looking within to examine your faith. You cannot strengthen faith by introspection. And how we try and try to strengthen our faith by introspection. You can't do that any more than you can promote growth in a plant by pulling it up to inspect its roots. You strengthen faith, rather, by looking hard at its objects. What's the object of our faith? Looking to Jesus. The promises of God that we find in Scripture, that's the object of our faith. The unseen realities of God and your life with Him and your hope of glory. The living Christ Himself once on the cross, now on the throne. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Recalling times when God's help was experienced in the past can also increase strength for the life of faith in the present. That's a beautiful sentiment too, isn't it? Because we can all look back at that season of life and say, you know what? 
God was faithful to see me through. Recall the former days, says the writer of Hebrews. My soul refuses to be comforted. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. The Lord stood by me so that I was rescued. The Lord will rescue me and save me, wrote the Apostle Paul to Timothy. John Newton wrote these words. His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last. In trouble to sink, each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. But perhaps the best prescription of all for invigorating feeble faith is that given in Hebrews 12. Lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the, the pioneer, the protector of our faith, the one who enabled us to live a life of faith modeled on his, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, consider him. Lift your drooping heads. Lift them. Strengthen your weak knees. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, who is promising, who is calling to your remembrance his faithfulness today. Look to him. Would you bow with me this morning? So we give you an opportunity to just be responsive, not to me, but to the Word of God today, to whatever the Spirit's doing in your heart. I, I just have a few questions that I'd like to ask. These are questions you can find on your bulletin. Have you professed, have you confessed your faith, believing that Jesus is your Savior, the only one who could save, the Redeemer, the only one who could justify the promised Christ. If you're here today and you're depending somehow on your works and you think, I, I read my Bible, I came to church today, those things are, are good enough. Isaiah says, no, those are still dirty rags. They're not enough. We cannot be good enough. It's only faith in the goodness, in the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Another question I want you to consider today is this. Where are you struggling to believe the promises that God has made to you? In other words, where is your faith weak? He says, don't fear, don't worry about where your food's coming from, where your clothes are coming from. I take care of the, the birds, I take care of the fields. Trust me. Is your faith weak in that area of life? 
Where are you struggling to believe the promises that God has made? And then finally this question, what steps will you take to deepen your faith? Will you open up the Word of God? Will you look to Jesus? Will you lay aside the sin? Will you take time to remember the faithfulness of God when you were 20 years old, when you were 30 years old? And what steps will you take to deepen the faith of others? Who are those people that you work with that they go through life without any hope? They don't know of a Savior. What steps will you take to share this hope with the hopeless? Father, this morning, as we bring this portion to a close, I thank you for the gift of faith. I thank you for this argument that's made here that, that is just crystal clear for us that Abraham was not justified by his works. He was justified by faith in you, in the work that his own ancestor would accomplish in his life and death. What a, what a cool twist to the story. But Lord, we are justified by what Christ has done, and may that fill us with joy. And may that cause us to fix our eyes on him today, tomorrow, every day as we move forward looking to him who authored this and who will bring it to completion. What joy it is to be called a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. Help us take the steps we need to take this week as individuals, as families, as a church to strengthen our faith in Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.